welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, it's Maz. Just a few words of housekeeping before we get to the next episode. I've decided to move the episode schedule to fortnightly releases again. I'll be doing this because I've found that trying to publish an episode each week means that I'm rushed and don't always get the time to prepare as much as I'd like for my interviews. It also means that I don't have the time to plan for a few new ideas I have for the podcast, such as live shows and panel discussions. Hopefully moving to fortnightly releases will also allow those who've missed some previous episodes or those who've only recently started following the show to listen to some of the older interviews. And the last thing I want to say today is to thank the three most recent Patreon supporters of The Voices of War. Thank you, Daniel, Isma, and Dave. Your contribution will go a long way in making sure the podcast keeps developing and growing. Okay, let's get on with today's episode with Jason Pack. As you will hear, Jason and I spoke about macro-level dynamics in global relations that Jason aptly calls the global enduring disorder. We talk about what this term means, how it contributes to war and conflict, and what, if anything, we can do about it. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it on your social media or like and review the show on your favorite podcasting app. Thanks a lot. My guest today is Jason Pack, who is the author of the book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Jason is also a senior analyst for emerging challenges at the NATO Defense College Foundation in Rome, where he leads a program titled NATO and the Global Enduring Disorder which seeks to produce a range of content analysing our current era of geopolitics while proposing actionable solutions to our most pressing collective action challenges. Jason is also the president of Libya Analysis, a boutique consultancy providing strategic advice to any organisations seeking to make sense of the latest political, economic, commercial and security developments in Libya. He's also the founder of the US-based non-profit Ionisis, which conducts research into Islam and Islamist movements in and outside of Libya. Its goal and core mission are to promote a more nuanced and accurate understanding of Islamist movements and the threat of different strains of Islamic militancy. Jason joins me today to discuss his excellent book, which I just finished, and how Libya has come to represent so much of what is wrong in the world today. Jason, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Great to be here with you, Mass. So before we delve into the enduring global disorder, you have a very colorful background, and I'd uh, love to hear a little bit about it. Uh, so maybe uh, we can uh, find out a little bit about your story and then land uh, on how you came to write this book uh, and why Libya. Sure. I mean, most of the ideas which come out in the book are things that I experienced myself. And therefore, despite all the silly footnotes and Arabic and Russian language sources, it's a, it's a book with this deep experiential knowledge. My story is that I'm from Manhattan and 
bizarrely, my folks thought when I was one and a half years old that a child grows better with a lawn, even though they themselves grew better with concrete. And uh, as a result, I went to high school in the boring town of Metuchen, New Jersey, where I am uh, speaking to you from now. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I was always thirsting for something more. And when I was in Massachusetts doing my undergrad, I studied science, but the 9-11 happened. And I had a sense that the 9-11 Maz was going to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't sure how big a deal it would be. I don't think I had a premonition that the world would never be the same. But I had an idea that the Arab world was going to be a new foreign policy challenge or arena for the United States. And that as a patriotic American, if I wanted to make a difference, it might be useful to study the Arab side rather than the Israeli or Western side of Mm, things. mm, mm. I then lived in Lebanon. Um, I studied Arabic in Yemen and Morocco. I got my Fulbright to Egypt, but the Egyptian government pulled the plug on my research and I got transferred to Syria. I've gotten up to many misadventures in Syria, you know, only kidnapped twice, (laughs) spied on by the secret police, Um, had lots of friends who were Alawites connected to the regime, you know, I had a fascinating time there. Mm. Um, My first attempt at the doctorate was my DPhil at Oxford about Syria and particularly about French policy towards the Alawites under the premiership of Leon Blum. And I had a sense that the academy wasn't for me, the whole publisher perish or, you know, Mm. in what way or what my colleagues were studying going to bear on important questions. I was recruited by a consulting firm to be their man in Tripoli. (laughs) And I've always believed in detente between the West and rogue or formerly rogue regimes. And this was the opportunity for me to live in Tripoli and be one of the very few Western academics to ever do like serious research there. Uh, I lived in Libya in 2008, nine, and I don't know how long an answer you wanted. So I'll stop there and say that that is what got me into Libya. And from that point onward, um, from that consultancy, never paying me and the project not being real to running the US Libya Business Association, creating my own consultancy, running a trade mission to Libya, having another trade mission, which was blocked by, you know, my member companies. I've had a a lot of experiences in the cockpit of policymaking, Mm. all of which led me to understand that, unfortunately, there is no coherent vision behind American policy and America is not coordinating the allies nor are Fortune 500 companies, the big oil companies that I represented, Mm -hmm. necessarily thinking about what's best in America or the West long-term interests. They might be thinking about their uh, bottom lines, but that analysis has been done by others. So I posit that, fascinatingly, a lot of the errors that big energy companies make are not trying to maximize quarterly earnings or shareholder Mm. returns. Mm. But rather incumbent psychology, a, a deep fear. Oh, my God, we're a monopolist. We have a good spot here. We have choice concessions. What can we do to make sure that things don't change too much, that we still have the WhatsApp number of the guy who makes these decisions? Yeah, so that, that we retain the monopoly. Or 
niche market access. So mm. again, I've given a few different strands there without mm. getting into my more recent career too much. That's uh, yeah, that's that's wonderful, and that, like you said, that opens up so many strands. Uh, maybe we can uh, pivot now to the thesis of the book because mm-hmm. that will uh, start tying some of these strands, or, or at least opening them up. So, maybe, what is the principal thesis of the book, uh, Enduring Global Disorder, uh, or sorry, Libya in the Global Enduring Disorder? What is the main thesis? Great. So. I weave together my experiences to argue that we are no longer in the post-Cold War world. And it's important to point out that I was writing this in 2019 and 2020. Mm, mm. And academic publishing just takes a while to culminate, right? Whereas now everyone has jumped on the bandwagon of saying, look, this war in Ukraine means that we're not in the post-Cold War world. Mm, mm -hmm. What I was saying is that from 2011 to the present, we could already see that the certitudes of the Cold War and post-Cold War eras were not in play. International institutions were not working to coordinate policy. American leadership was not really present on the core geostrategic issues and arenas like Syria and Libya, or even Ukraine. And then I insert things beyond my experience to critique the political science or international relations theory of realism, Hmm. because realism looks at states, Maz, as having interests and Hmm. rationally trying to maximize their interests. Hmm. And that's akin to what economists look at individuals and corporations Mm -hmm. as maximizing their utility or profit. Hmm. But about 40 years ago, we had the behavioralists in, Hmm. in economics and they said, this isn't really what goes on. You know what mm, I mean? Mm. People don't necessarily drive three or four more miles to get a better deal. Yeah. Or they don't make a decision now, which will get them the credentials to apply for the job to make more money. We're not rational actors. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that why is it that we haven't looked at states in this way or corporations in this way? Because I don't see them as rational actors either. They're governed by incumbent psychology. And a declining America and a declining West, to my mind, hasn't necessarily maximized its interests or rationally coordinated for optimal outcomes. Hmm. So I introduced concepts like incumbent psychology and neo-mercantilism. What is is incumbent? Because you've mentioned incumbent incumbent psychology a couple of times. What, What do you mean by that? Because I think that really zeroes in into the human inside this system or, or order slash disorder that you're trying to describe? Sure. So I believe a range of individuals, policymakers, CEOs, as well as uh, whole organizations can fall prey to incumbent psychology. Mm. This is something that an ascending power is less likely to experience. So America from World War I to 1980, less likely to experience this incumbent psychology. Because when you feel like the wind is at your back and you're growing and you have this strong military and your economy is amazing and you have the best manufactured goods, you're like, sure, let's have free trade. Let's compete one-to-one with these European or other products because we have better steel and we have you know, the best computers. Hmm. Incumbent psychology is more likely to set in when you're on the decline, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. And even if you are a leader in your industry, say Facebook or Amazon or Google, you still get the sense that you might be a leader in an industry, but as part of a declining power. So when you have a monopoly in that industry, you're like, great, 
now that I'm the top dog, let's try to lobby the regulators so that we don't have more competition. Or as soon as there is potential competitors, let's buy up those competitors. And we see this a lot in terms of Amazon and Facebook. Mm-hmm. As soon as they're potential competitors, they just throw a few billion around mm-hmm. to make sure that they remain in the incumbent position. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised when I ran the US Libya Business Association to see this with these Fortune 500s in Libya, because I had the sense that American business is very competitive and very profit driven and, you know, profit maximization, right? The, mm. the myth of the American corporate. And then to realize that what they really wanted was to prevent reform. And we don't really care if we get a new business deal. Let's just make sure that we get our old back payments paid mm. and we stay in our position. Mm. Mm. That was very shocking for me. You know what I mean? Because that, that goes against certainly what people from the New York area think. Mm. Mm. about American capitalism. You know what I mean? I, 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 I am from the center left, but certainly I believe and have always believed in, in, in capitalism and that the American corporation is the, 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 the creative destructor, right? Mm. And to find mm. out now, actually, you know, these guys have been in Libya since before the Qaddafi period, since the 60s. They like to hold on to their patch. They don't want to even invest or throw more money at it because they get their tiny bit of return out of their crude oil. Some nimbler French or European companies might want to invest more in the pipeline or acquire some more concessions or buy more stake of the consortium. But these American ones, nah, probably not for them. Too risk averse. That goes very much against the American vision of capitalism. But the more I investigated it, why was Trump saying, let's have protectionism, let's buy America, let's have tariffs? Because the American economy has all of a sudden magically turned inward in these five years. And even Biden talks about buy America. Mm. And so I think that from our policymakers to our CEOs to these big tech giants, it's just something is in the zeitgeist of like, you know, while we kind of have it good now, why should we risk it? And obviously that's how, you know, empires fall. Yeah. I mean, but. But I guess my question is there is how, how is that different? I mean, what corporations are doing? If this is part of the human psychology piece, what corporations are doing? I mean, many would argue that even in the, you know, Cold War era or post-Cold War era uh, or post-World War II era, uh, that the US as the single hegemon was doing exactly that. It was, you know, seeking to retain its power. Okay, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily business interest, but it was certainly power interest. I mean, how is that different to what you just described of corporations, where sometimes they'll even do things that aren't necessarily in their interest, but just so uh, other global powers don't have access to a particular market or uh, or at least diminish their influence. Well, certainly analysts on the extreme left will say this has been going on the whole time, right? Maybe you know Samir Amin or mm-hmm. some of these other Marxist and neo-Marxist critiques of American foreign policy. Hmm. I don't buy into any of that neo-Marxist critique. And I think that in the United States, from about World War I until the early 21st century, there was a consensus for free trade. Mm -hmm. Certainly after World War II, we thought Mm -hmm. we make the best manufactured goods, bring it on. We're going to sell our cars, our furniture, and our widgets. And so the Germans might be good at some of these widgets, but we don't care. We don't need tariff boundaries to protect our steel and our widgets from your widgets. Hmm. 
there's a different zeitgeist now, this incumbent psychology that, you know, both on the left and right, protectionism is very, very popular right now in America. Mm-hmm. And traditionally in the energy extraction industry, mass, America has been the world leader. As, as you know, crude was first uh, produced in marketable quantities in Pennsylvania in the 1860s. And the global oil industry is American in origin. Mm-hmm. So we created the Libyan oil patch. All the pipeline network was built by American and British companies, but mostly American. American technology is the thing that makes the electricity that allows the drilling to happen in Libya. Mm. Obviously, Saudi Arabia is an example of a country where every aspect of how Aramco functions is American tech, American engineers, and American companies. It's shocking to realize that in the last 20 or 30 years, all of a sudden, the American oils and American oil field services are not necessarily world leading. That Mm. if you were, say, the Egyptians who discovered their Zohar field quite late, it wasn't for a political reason that they went to ENI, which used to be the reason that third world and African and other despots went to a firm like ENI. It wasn't that ENI had the best tech to do the offshore. It was that there was a political reason the Americans couldn't touch it or, you know, you were too much of a dictator. Now we're in a new world, even when it comes to these oil field services technologies, that there is no significant gap between the American tech and European or even sometimes Turkish or Chinese tech, which is pretty crazy. Mm. But even beyond that, the Americans may be less risk prone. They're more risk averse. Um, That's a significant change that gets at this incumbent psychology. And again, Mm. it's not, you don't learn too much about the book bloviating about this topic. I talk about it for about three pages only, Mm. Mm -hmm. as, as you may have discovered. But from my own experiences representing US companies that were like, well, We kind of don't want to make this trade mission happen. And you're like, but wait a second, the British have had a trade mission to Libya every year. I was just on the Libyan British Business Council trade mission. Hmm. Well, you know, that's true. But, and of course, they would never state their real reasons. This psychology that has caught hold, certainly in the Republican Party, but even in certain aspects of just Washington or Silicon Valley, it's interesting to experience it because it cuts against our self-definition. Hmm. And this is, I guess, the enduring global disorder. What you've described there is that the established norms uh, that had existed have been, are being shaken up by players who don't make rational sense to even be players in particular markets, uh, politics, uh, security uh, economics, etc. Is that, am I reading that right? Sure. I didn't lead with what the enduring disorder is because just randomly we got into defining incumbent psychology, which is a minor concept within, within it. Mm-hmm. The enduring disorder briefly put is what I term the period after the post-Cold War period. Mm. It differs from other geostrategic eras in that the forces promoting order within it are weaker than the forces promoting disorder. And the primary things that are going wrong are collective action failures rather than bad policy. Mm -hmm. So 
I see the Iraq invasion as happening during the post-Cold War period. It was largely decided in the Pentagon, and Wolfowitz and Fife and Cheney and Bush made a hack of it. It's mm-hmm. not a coordination problem. It was a problem within the American hegemonic order. Mm-hmm. Some people will say, oh, well, the Georgians gave troops or Tony Blair changed the mission. No, they, they didn't change the mission significantly. The mistakes were made within American hegemonic order. That's not what's going on in our mistakes towards Libya or Ukraine or Syria. These are coordination issues. There's not some policy being decreed in the Pentagon and all of a sudden Macron or Boris does exactly the policy. Mm. It doesn't work that way anymore. Mm-hmm. The things that have gone wrong in Libya post-Gaddafi are that Cameron had one idea. Sarkozy had another idea. Mm. You know, one mm. backs the Zintanis, the other backs the Misratans. Mm. They mm. have a coordination complexity between them. And then the Libyans have coordination complexities amongst themselves. So that makes policy towards Libya and policy towards Syria quite similar to issues like climate change and tax havens which have always been coordination issues. Mm. Even in the Cold War period, an issue like tax havens, that's a coordination issue. Mm -hmm. What's shocking is that in the enduring disorder, everything is a coordination issue. The UN doesn't work. The IMF doesn't work. So that makes everything a new ad hoc coalition that you have to coordinate. And this is exacerbated by the partisan politics within our democracies. It used to be, Yes, there were differences between Republicans and Democrats, but for the most part, you know, they agreed on NATO and they agreed on Mm, certain mm, key foreign policy decisions. So there wasn't a coordination complexity in the Senate on foreign policy. mm. But now even domestically, we have those coordination complexities. And then we can take this to the next level, which is that major global actors seek to promote disorder rather than alternative forms of order. And this is something that, yes, Putin is at the forefront of this, but even Bolsonaro and Orban and Trump and Boris Mm -hmm. are exporters of alternative disorder rather than alternative forms of order. I can explain this very easy Mm -hmm. by by explaining the difference between Stalin and Khrushchev and Putin. Mm -hmm. Stalin and Khrushchev, to my mind, bad dudes, right? Murdered millions of their own people, very, very happy to crush rebellions in other countries. However, when they would win, they had a fully formed form of order that they took out of the cookie jar, and it had an ideology and an economic system, and they tried to impose it. No part of the world was unimportant enough to export their fully formed economic and ideological system. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter if it was you know, Cuba or Zaire or Czech. They have an economic system and an ideology, and they want to impose it there. That's not what Putin is doing with the Wagner group in Libya and Mali and Syria. He doesn't have an alternative order. There's no Mm -hmm. economic system that he's exporting to these places. If he would have won in Ukraine, he might have had a puppet government, but he wasn't going to export some kind of coherent Kremlin economic model Mm -hmm. because it doesn't exist. There is no coherent economic model. Mm. And you might say, well, it's just kleptocracy. No, it's worse than that. I argue it's a form of deliberative disorder. Mm, And that's what makes Trump quite different than previous Republican administrations. Again, whatever you might think about W. Bush, he had coherent policies. I don't happen to agree with most of them, Mm -hmm. 
but it was, you know, a Grover Norquest, low tax, neocon, strong army policy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We worked with our allies in this way. Trump, no policy at all. We abandoned mm -hmm. the Kurds. He wants to withdraw from Afghanistan. But then we sell our foreign policy in the Middle Eastern region to the Emiratis and the Saudis. But then we have some incoherence in how we deal with Putin, which doesn't make sense relative to certain other commitments. But then we're abandoning NATO. It, this was just disorder. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and those who try to defend it and say, oh, you know, it was a retrenchment. We are kind of just, you know, decreasing the burden on the American taxpayer and like focusing on our core interests. Not really, because our core interests had to do with are Ukrainian allies? There was mm. absolutely no coherence. Mm. Mm. Um, so to my mind, it's a new era where many actors have engaged in deliberative disorder, Maz. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. therefore the world system has within it cycles and circles of negative feedback loops of disorder promoting disorder. And we're in an interregnum of order. And that's different than multipolarity like we might have had in World War One or the interwar period, where whatever you think about the Germans or the imperial Japanese, they wanted to order their spheres of influence. I say that Putin and Xi, they're not selling an alternative order. They just want to disorder yeah. Yeah, yeah. their sphere of influence. Well, they, well, they stabilized the order that preceded today, uh, which is the, uh, you know, Pax Americana, right? I mean, it, it is the uh, US-led uh, global order, and I guess what they're trying to do is 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 recreate the disorder in international relations, but in you know domestic spaces of the US, of the UK, even of Australia, or of uh, Western developed progressive nations who have up to now uh, been leading the world, so to speak, or, or setting the global policies. So, so is that? I mean, you talked about the war in Iraq and how that's different uh, to what's happening in, say, Ukraine or even Syria. Can you just explain that a little bit more? Because, I mean, is it is it not then true that the US, through its policies, has almost undermined the global order that it was leading uh, up to that point? For sure. And I'm no big fan of the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. It was the wrong intervention at the wrong time. Mm. However, it was a standard hegemonic mistake, mm. you know. Um, Roman emperors occasionally overextended themselves and they got killed by Goths and Visigoths or things of this nature. But mm. that's like a regular hegemonic mistake. They didn't make that mistake because they were like coordinating with the Parthians and then the Sassanids are like, well, we're going to help you on this campaign, but their help wasn't good enough. And then they lost. No, it was regular hegemonic mistake. That's what we did in Iraq, like other empires made. This is extremely different to what has happened in Libya and Syria and Yemen and even Venezuela and certainly Ukraine. We haven't had a coherent policy because the Western allies failed to coordinate one amongst themselves. Libya, which I put forth as the great microcosm with, with, within which we can study these ideas, mm, 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 mm showcases this extremely vividly because for the first time since World War II, 
The Italians and French fought on the opposite sides of a hot civil war in Libya. And you might say, oh, no, no, they just trained opposite sides. Like the Italians were training the Misratans and Bunyan mm-hmm. Marsus or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the French were training Haftar. But no, they had embedded special forces. And we don't really know all the details because it's it's embarrassing. So they try to conceal these casualties. But when that French helicopter went down on the Haftar side, it was then transparent that French forces were fighting against Italian forces Mm. 400 miles south of European territory. If something like that had happened in the Reagan period, Reagan would have picked up the phone and said, knock it off. I don't Mm. allow core European allies to fight on opposite sides of a civil war. If you keep this going on, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Now, Obama took it in stride. He might have said, I'm disappointed but he has no levers to get them on the same side because he wasn't even the main coordinating power Mm. in Western policy towards Libya. Think about that. Right. Mm, 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 And there was no point in the cold war where America was not the main coordinating power in a major conflict because it just didn't work that way. Right. mm. When they were disappointed that their allies did something in Suez. Wow. Was there a price to pay? Mm, mm, Hmm. We don't even inflict any prices because we're not trying to order Western policy. What's the what's the root behind this? I mean, what is the cause behind the enduring disorder that we find ourselves in? Many. The causes are many. Mm-hmm. And, you know, far be it from me to really disentangle them. One is declining American political might. The declining economic might is quite more attenuated. In other words, if our peak was like 45% of manufacturing outcome globally, well, we still have 28%, right? And if American GDP or investment capital dominance was X, we still have two thirds X. So it's not really like there's been a huge economic decline, right? Mm -hmm. But there are more actors in the space. And I would argue that the role of the American government in American foreign policy and American economic policy rather than individual corporations is less. Mm. So sovereign actors seem to have less power, particularly in the West, than private actors because individuals can throw billions around in ways that they couldn't previously. Capital is more globalized. The role of states are less important. Um, Those are important factors in the enduring disorder. Then something went on wrong after the Iraq war, which is that the main allies said, we're not going to be led by America. And I understand this Mm. because from a French and German perspective, they went to the Americans and said, don't do this. If you do this, we can't really back you up. Mm. Then the Americans did it. And what do you know? Then they couldn't back them up. So I understand that that was a very pivotal moment in the coherence of NATO. And for all those who think, well, isn't NATO coherent again? Hasn't Biden you know, regained that credibility? Mm. I don't see it that way. Because we could have deterred the Russian invasion of Ukraine if four months ago, when Putin was really building up his troops on the Belarusian-Ukrainian border, and Olaf Scholz had just become chancellor, mm. if he got out there and had a joint press conference with Biden and said, I will cancel Nord Stream 2. 
Germany is going to rearm. And there is no daylight between the U.S. and Germany on this. Back off, Mr. Putin. Mm, mm, mm. He did the opposite. He went to Moscow and said, oh, we don't know if we're going to cancel Nord Stream 2. Mm -hmm. Don't worry. We won't let the Baltic countries re-export German arms. That's Mm. crazy. Mm. The amount of German arms in Latvia or Estonia was not going to provoke Putin to make a war. It's like minimal relative to the amount of arms that we give the Ukrainians. But it Mm. just showcased that the Germans like we're going to do their own policy. And then ironically, three days into the invasion, they had to change and they adopted the same policy as everyone else. Mm. So that is some bad coordination, right? Mm. If the Germans are saying one thing and the French and the British are saying another thing in terms of the nature of the sanctions. And then fundamentally, because the Western peoples are more on the same page than the Western governments, Mm. Olaf Scholz had to reverse course because the German people are the same place that the Polish and Americans are on this. They stand with Ukraine. Mm. So he just completely miscalculated and miscoordinated. It's, it's, it's shocking. And when the history of this is written, and it's going to take years and years and years, I think Olaf Scholz uh, is largely going to be responsible for why Putin had the temerity to invade. Mm. I mean, I guess in, in in his defense, Putin had done something similar a number of times before. It's not the first time the troops were, uh, you know, in Ukraine or uh, around Ukraine uh, in Belarus. Uh, so I guess no one really thought that, uh, you know, even days days before, even Zelensky himself uh, was uh, was yelling out at the world, "Stop, stop, uh, stop building this up." Uh, you will make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Russia will not invade. Uh, stand down. Uh, so I guess in, in uh, but but it's different yeah, because yeah. Zelensky was saying that to calm his own people. Yeah. What Olaf Scholz needed to do is say, I don't think he's going to do it, but if he does, we don't have any daylight with America. Yeah. Yeah. A red line, right? It's the it's yeah it's the, yeah, and, and, and therefore this all goes back to the Syria red line. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. And 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 certainly that we didn't honor the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. Mm-hmm. when Crimea was annexed and the Donbass invaded in, in, in 2014, mm-hmm. that let Putin think he could get away with it. And yeah. that's global enduring disorder, if I could ever imagine it, you know, because yeah. it used to be if you so much as sneezed at an international treaty mm-hmm. or had one or two British citizens killed, gunboats appeared outside your port and you were banged into submission yeah. because the principle of the British Empire was more important than if it was in Britain's interest at that moment to like spend the money on that war. Mm, mm. Now we're at a place where no principle, even the most sacrosanct thing, like you can't acquire territory by force or we can't be forced to not honor our treaty commitments to Ukraine. That's not important enough. Mm. And Mm. what I had always said in the lead up to this Ukraine war is that if the 1994 Budapest memorandum isn't enough to have NATO members go to war, then Article 5 of NATO itself isn't enough. You know, we might as well just throw in the towel. Mm, mm. Well, I mean, this is, uh, and I've heard you elsewhere describe yourself as uh, as, as, as Hobbesian or Hobbesian. Um, uh, and, and I guess what we're seeing here is the emergence of, of Hobbes' state of nature, right? I mean, it's, it's literally war of everyone against everyone, or at least that's what's being encouraged uh, by those who, who benefit uh, from American decline and the disorder, right? Yes. And 
I don't want to sound like I'm an apologist for the kind of Dick Cheney and, you know, crazy Reagan policies in, in lots of parts of the world, which have had horrible human rights implications. But I personally would rather live in a world where there is a Western superpower making free trade happen. And, you know, I can go travel to another country and make sure that, you know, I'm not going to get kidnapped or my bank account functions. I think that you can create better art and invent vaccines to cure pandemics in that world Mm -hmm. rather than in a state of nature where every nation is for itself and we don't have international organizations and institutions functioning. Mm -hmm. And that debate is open, right? You know, and some people on the extreme left are going to say, well, you know, maybe it's better that the Indians or Chinese run the world. Mm. I haven't seen any indications that they want to or that they can create a rules-based system Mm. where contracts are honored and, uh, you know, free trade is allowed to function, which is the kind of world that I think produces the intellectual as well as human goods that we enjoy. Mm. And I think this is a this is a key point because it really comes down to the it, it, we, we have to talk about the global order you know you know pre the current global disorder as being US led and I think this is the you've just hit the nail on the head I would also much rather live in that world um, as much as I don't agree with uh, some US foreign policy particularly war in Iraq uh, yes war in Afghanistan initially certainly but how it was managed uh, later on. Um, you know, and and even even some of its policies towards uh, former Soviet states, uh, even some policies towards the Balkans, uh, where sure. oftentimes they were part of the problem rather than the solution. For sure. Having said all this, having said all this, I'd much rather have a world where uh, you know there is a a global hegemon that can force order. Now, I guess I guess this is why why I asked you before about the war in Iraq and and and. Has the U.S. shot itself in the foot? Ultimately, has the U.S. contributed because of the very same psychological uh, effects you described in uh, in some corporations? Uh, in other words, acting against its interests purely for the sake of retaining power or retaining dominance or uh, uh, or slowing its demise, dissent, call it whatever you want. Um, and that's basically what you know. Why, why we're what's allowed these uh, uh, disruptive forces of your Russias, of your Chinas, uh, you know, of your um, you, you know Iran's, North Korea's, uh, Hungary's, even uh, Brazil's, etc., to actually take hold and try to ca- carve out their own piece of this kind of global order, and and using American failures, American. Uh, hegemony, American exceptionalism, as a way to argue their point. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, we sowed the seeds of this disorder, and therefore, the failure to reintegrate the Russian economy into the global economy mm. after the mm. collapse of the Soviet Union is something that future historians are going to really, I think make as pivotal a moment as the Iraq war. The Iraq mm, war is extremely mm. pivotal. It mm. seeds our decline. Mm. Ibn Khaldun, as well as people like Arthur Schlesinger and pretty much every historian sees a cyclical nature in the rise and fall of empires and powers, mm. right? Mm. Mm-hmm. No empire or power can 
rule indefinitely because power leads to hubris and corruption. Yeah. For sure. You know, something in human nature makes a thousand years Reich impossible. Mm-hmm. But I think we could have had a good more 50 or 70 years <laughs> where we could have created institutions. Yeah. Yeah. And these mistakes, these mega, mega mistakes, like if I'll, I'll highlight three, the Iraq war, mm. and then thinking that political transition in Russia was more important than economic transition. Like, well, so long as they vote in elections, yeah. you know, let them do their own economic system. Yeah, we're such a believer in this thing called neoliberalism or Milton Friedmanism. Mm-hmm. The market's going to sort it out. Yeah. Well, the market sorting it out was not what the Russians had in mind. They had in mind gifting the most lucrative parts of their economy to cronies of the ruler, whether it was Yeltsin or Putin, or Anatoly Khobayas via the loans for shares scheme. Mm, mm, mm. And therefore, by not thinking that, well, you know, we had anything to say about that part of the puzzle, we created multi-bazillion dollar reasons why oligarchs would want to capture power. (laughs) Fundamentally, what I think is a connection between Libya and Russia, so post-Soviet Russia and post-Qaddafi Libya, is that if the Western powers are so obsessed with get the dictator out, let's have elections, but they don't think about reforming the economy or making sure that those economic structures have the right incentives, you create a reason for state capture. Russia and Libya are both very wealthy countries with huge amounts of resource wealth and sovereign wealth. Mm. The old economic structures were meant for centralization and corruption. So if you just have, well, we'll have a few elections and then, you know, they'll decide. That doesn't work when once you're in power, you have the ability to just raid Mm. the corrupt assets. So the failure to, 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 to really have the right model about how all the post-Soviet countries needed to be integrated in the global economy is to my mind, as much of a screw up Mm. as the Iraq war, because Ukraine is also a very, very deeply corrupt place. Mm. And that's part of the reason that they've ping pong back from, you know, Yanukovych to Poroshenko to Zelensky, you know, they haven't had coherent, defense policy, because it's all about getting an office and corrupting to your allies and the poisoning of of Ukrainian politicians is normal. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a second major, major failing in U.S. leadership. Mm-hmm. And then well, I'll actually I said three, but I'll say four. The mm-hmm. third is to not have the Cold War end with a treaty and international institutions. Mm. World War Two ended with a treaty and major institutions. It culminated in the UN and mm-hmm. the IMF and the World Bank and a, a, a new political and economic order, which embedded both the victorious and the conquered states in a new order. Mm-hmm. And then everyone had a stake in it. When we won the Cold War, we have this Budapest Memorandum of 1994, but it's not even a treaty. It's not ratified by the Senate. But we convince the Ukrainians to give up their nukes Mm. in exchange for guarantees that their territorial integrity would be, you know, sacrosanct. Mm. But we didn't make any institution to protect that. We just, you know, well, we signed and the Russians signed and the British signed. So it's like, okay, let's enjoy our peace now. Yeah. 
Why were there no institutions? Because if, if the UN worked for the Cold War era, we needed a new institution where India and Germany and, you know, all of these other mm. new and emerging players, Africa and others, would be vested in a new order rather than the talking shop of the UN, which doesn't work, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was built for a world order that doesn't really exist. And mm. then I'll get at a fourth one, which is that even despite all of those failings, Western countries didn't have a sense that their corporations and the policies of their corporations were something that would have enormous geostrategic implications because they believed in these kind of free market or not even free market because I like the free market, but like neoliberal, you know, just let the, you know, let everyone make as much profit as he wants to make. Mm-hmm. Deutsche Bank and ExxonMobil have been the ATMs of the Putin regime, but they've also propped up every crazy dictatorship in Africa. Mm. And we didn't use our economic levers and our companies in the post-Arab Spring space to try to leverage American and Western foreign policy. And why not? Why not? Because that's a that's a critical piece that, that I think really hits at the heart of this again. Why did we not do that? I think that neoliberalism is a cult. Mass. Mm-hmm. And Australians are more likely to understand this because you've had the rise of a new right wing in your country, which I don't know if it's really in bed with the mining and oil interests or it's an ideological affinity with some bizarre Anglo-Saxon economic model but has taken the view that, you know, the Australian government should just let these companies make a hay while the sun shines. Mm. This does not, you know, go with the tradition of the Australian, you know, social model or mm-hmm. Australian uh, uh, governance over, you know, human development and infrastructure and stuff. It's very, it's very bizarre that this neoliberalism would all of a sudden come to Australia where it would seems kind of alien there, you know? Mm, mm. Um, so uh, flawed ideologies and flawed economic models are, are, you know, very normal, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe that there is something about defeating the Soviet Union that inherently would lead to the Western powers embracing an extreme opposite, almost a clownish opposite of, you know, the thing that they had just defeated. There must be mm, some mm. kind of bizarre appeal to that. Mm, mm. Well, I guess everyone dropped their guard. I mean, it was done and it, and it was time to enjoy now the peace dividend, which was, you know, endless growth for everybody and uh, uh, particularly these, these corporations. Uh, and unfortunately, those corporations were acting in such a way in in you know globally in the global south or in the non or in the developing nations uh, in a way that can only be described oftentimes as uh, the state of nature i mean it was it was uh, you know capture what you can and take what you can uh, and i guess that then led to the non-rational model of okay now that we've got whatever we've got we need to retain whatever we've got um you know even at the cost of losing money which is completely antithetical to what you know, a business model ought to do, but it's just so that, you know, we have our flag here and no one else uh, can capture it. So it, 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 to me, it reflects very much uh, the, the kind of 
what the corporations have done really reflects global politics in many ways, but perhaps a little bit later uh, or slightly delayed uh, from politics. Yeah, I like that analogy, which is that if there's no sense of coherent and consensus leadership politically, why would companies be thinking in the 10, 20, 30 year term? Mm. They wouldn't, mm. you know, yeah. and this gets at the kind of cultural battles. Yeah. If you grow up in a society, and I've seen this because I've lived in Libya or Syria so much, where you don't necessarily know where your next meal is coming yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you come to power. How you can you ask? You can. Yeah. yeah. How can you assume that that person is going to like? Oh well, we're going to make some decisions about like education and and uh, infrastructure <laughs> well, building yeah, and health. Yeah. That is going to reap dividends <laughs> in thirty years. Yeah. You're just not going to have that view, and and yeah. and therefore. I find myself bizarrely defending, you know, hegemonic imperial order mm. more and more because when you have a dominant hegemonic or imperial order, you have to have continuity in the ruling classes. And those ruling classes don't necessarily need to be elites. It could be a meritocratic ruling class, right? Mm, mm, mm. But the idea was that it didn't matter if you were a liberal or a Tory in 19th century England, you thought the British empire was going to be something that your kids and grandkids would be administering. Mm, mm. So you weren't going to like sell off bits and pieces of it or, you know, make some silly decision to help you get elected in 1884 mm. because it was a, it was a multi-generational project. And mm. therefore as a multi-generational project, it was a multi-party project. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's very bizarre as an American now when, you know, I feel like I grew up in the state of just, you know, where ignorance is bliss, his folly to be wise. Hmm. I didn't think that Republicans and Democrats had extremely different foreign policies. <laughs> you mm, know, mm, mm. Yeah. that wasn't something that I fully grasped, certainly until W was elected, hmm. because it just didn't seem when Clinton was in office that he would have been that different than if Herbert Walker Bush had gotten another mm, term mm, in foreign mm. policy. Yeah, and these, yeah. Yeah. these feuds that we have now, you can't make a coherent policy decision or investment when you're afraid that when the other team comes in, taxes are going to change by 10 or 20 percent, or we're all of a sudden going to become enemies with that country, or you know what I mean? This mm, is just mm. a world where the amount of variables is so great, it would be really difficult to make these long-term decisions because- then all of a sudden Trump is going to come back and we're going to kiss mm, Putin's ass mm, and he's going to mm -hmm. be our best friend again. You mm, know what I mean? Like mm, mm -hmm. how can you as a business make a long-term decision in a world? Because there is a world where by 2025, Putin is still in power and yeah. <laughs> America is his friend and doing favors for him to increase mm. his power. Think mm, about that. That mm. world exists still. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's that, and that is a very scary world. I mean, it's you, you talked about institutions and the importance of institutions, and that's what strikes me as something really important. You know, when we look at a stable nation, whatever it might be, usually it's because the institutions within that state function. In other words, trust between the uh, uh, electorate and the state exists and is represented through the functions of the state, which is through its institutions, whether it's you know the police force, military, uh, economic policy, health. Uh, civil society, whatever institutions exist within a country, uh, enable that en enable you to think about tomorrow uh, as certainty, as opposed to, like you said, uh, in places like Libya, Syria, and I can relate to this from the Balkans. 
you don't know where you're going to get your next meal uh, from tomorrow. So therefore, every day uh, is a battle uh, and you can't trust anyone and therefore you take what you can while you can. Uh, and, and I guess what's happening now is, uh, or at least the way it's visualizing in my mind, is the institutions of, broadly speaking, Western nations are starting to, 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 to lose their, their connection or their, uh, the trust uh, that they're meant to embody within the electorate. Uh, you yeah. know, many have been disappointed. You know, we talk about the U- the US. You know, Trump uh, Trump came to power on, on a policy of you know the working class American has lost out uh, over the last you know thirty years. Uh, you know, US uh, US uh, bouncing around the world, starting wars. Uh, it's it's detrimental to uh, the American way of life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's the you know people and, and people in all of these countries, like the you know Brexit in the UK, they have. There's a kernel of truth sufficient. Oh, of course. Right? Sufficient to fan now these kind of flames uh, that, that are ultimately making everybody doubt. And we, we see this even in Australia, which is an exceptionally wealthy country that's never really had war within its borders. We're seeing that even here, where people have lost trust in the institutions, in our politicians completely, you know, it, 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 even in, in, in elections, you know, why should I even vote when, you know, the next person is just going to be doing the same kind of thing? One thing that I have learned through my experiences living in Syria and Libya and then seeing some of the dynamics socially that exist mm. there in my own country, mm. in America, is how fragile a flower mm. social trust and democracy are. Mm. It's fascinating that some countries that might not work might have more of this variable of social trust. Mm. So I think of Israel as a place where, yes, broadly within the Jewish secular sector, if we put the Haredim and the Palestinians and even Arab Israelis on one side, there is a bizarre sense that if the government tells you to take a vaccine or they tell you that you need to be at this reserve location, you're there. Do you know what Mm. I mean? Mm. And now... When you come back to a place like America, Mm. you see that Sweden is closer to Israel in terms of social trust Mm. than it is to America. Mm. Because when Anders Tignell, the health minister in Sweden, had the very interesting view, don't wear masks. Mm. We're either going to do herd immunity or we'll ride it out. Mm. I Mm. was in Sweden for a lot of the pandemic mass. Mm. Mm. You would go into a crowded mall before the vaccines. And and I had been, you know, months and months in Manhattan where you would not (laughs) even see a soul on the street. And if you would run into a shop, everyone is masked. You have your thing and you run out, you know, Mm -hmm. people are like socializing and chatting with the store clerk three feet away in Sweden. Yeah. And this is because they're such a rule following society. Absolutely. Yeah. With such a sense of social trust that you could tell them don't wear masks, don't Mm. worry, and they do it. And Danes, who are essentially almost the same, Mm. Mm -hmm. were told have an incredibly rigorous lockdown Mm. and always wear your mask, and they did it, Mm. showing just Denmark and Sweden as pinnacles of social trust. Mm. They didn't have debates or civil wars in their society. Mm. Mm. Even though most Danes can understand Swedish TV and most Swedes can understand Danish TV. Mm. They mm. just said, we believe our thing because uh, we were told yeah. by our authorities. Yeah. Now look at the U.S. where even the differences between major cities 
the New Jersey approach to the pandemic differs from the New York approach. Mm. And that is extremely different from the Alabama or deep Republican <laughs> South approach. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. We had a social war over how to respond to this pandemic because the social trust, once it's lost, I think it would take generations to regain it and things are going to have to get a lot worse. Mm. A new generation of Americans is going to have to say, I care less about my ideological view about taxes or abortion or infrastructure. Yeah. And I care more about giving up my own wins and even potentially personal freedom so that we have consensus. Yeah. And that is just so not where we're at, both on the left and right. People want to win the battle. The other guys are so much my enemy. They are wrong. Yeah. You know, and yeah. given that America is still the global superpower, we're in decline. But if anyone is coordinating the allies vis-a-vis -vis the how should we support Ukraine? What should we give them? What should we not give them? How mm. are we going to negotiate, you know, with Putin? It's America. Mm. Mm. We may have some mediators. We may work with the Turks on this. We may work with the Israelis on that. But the Americans are the ones who have to be coordinating the show, you know? Mm. Mm. And if we're so divided internally, I mean, this enduring disorder is not going to be news to your listeners. And unfortunately, the less we talk about the Libya content of the book, the more I realize that the things that I put forth, although they were original in 2019, they've just become mundane. It's pretty commonplace, a lot of this analysis. Uh, is, it, the, uh, uh, is it? I mean, I, 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 I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because I, I'm not necessarily, yes, people are to an extent becoming disenchanted and disappointed and realize that something different is going on in the world. But I think it for, for for much of the public that doesn't necessarily delve deeply into this, it is it is merely a disincentive to find out more and learn more. And therefore they're far more prone to simple decisions and voices that seem to answer questions simply and clearly, right? Particularly to and, and we're seeing this through social media. Uh, and which is inadvertently leading to a to more polarization and contributing to the enduring disorder. Uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not as as optimistic, I guess, as you are that people actually take the time to to understand, you know, the, to link the micro what they're seeing in the everyday world okay. to accept, what's happening. I, in I accept that. I accept that. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not the only commentator or pundit pushing in this direction now. Mm. Maybe what's interesting to to showcase for your listeners a degree of the difference of my perspective is to tell certain anecdotes, mm -hmm. like how I came to this from my personal experience. Is that please, Yeah, absolutely. Please. So I like telling the following story just to showcase how different things have become. In 2013, I was a graduate student at Cambridge in the UK. And, you know, for my spring break or whatever, I went to Libya to do some research. But as you do, <laughs> as you do, because I have my consultancy, mm -hmm. the EU ambassador, you know, reached out to me and said, she'd like a briefing. Mm -hmm. So I'm giving the briefing and I feel really bad for Natalia Apostolova because I've done a lot of book launches and I always tell this story. So sorry, Natalia, but she's <laughs> a Bulgarian uh, career diplomat who had been given this EU posting, but not an Arabist, didn't know Libya very well. And she's like, you know, who do I need to talk to? And, you know, Misrata came up and she's like, oh, I've got to go to Misrata. Who are the Misratans? You know, and I'm like, well, mm. obviously you should meet Abdurrahman Swahili. You've got to meet Fauzi Abdullah. And she's writing these names down. And I'm like, 
that's kind of weird because he's the interior minister. Why should the ambassador be writing the name of the interior? Like she doesn't know who it is. Mm. And she then says to me, wouldn't it be useful if you could give me their phone numbers? Mm. I'm like, but you run the EU embassy. Mm. Your assistant Mm. can give you the phone number. Yeah. And she says, oh, no, no, I don't have that kind of stuff. So I'm like, okay, you know, can't you just go to the British? Because (laughs) the British have like huge amount of contact network, particularly in Misrata. I mean, you could get in touch with Fatih Bashago, whose career was in the ascendant. And she's like, they wouldn't give me that kind of sensitive intelligence. So I'm thinking like, well, maybe that's because the Brits are kind of Eurosceptic. Can't you go to the Italians or the French core EU nations and they'll give you some phone numbers or you can read their intelligence briefings. And she said, no, that's not how the EU works. Wow. We're the European External Action Service, the EEAS. I don't have the ability to get information or intelligence from the member states. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, whoa, that is insane, right? Mm -hmm. And then you realize that the French and the Italians would have rival meetings set up with different factions in Libya so that their guy would be more likely to come into power and not the French guy. Mm-hmm. Then if we go to email gate and Americans are more likely than, than Australians to know about what email gate is. Email gate mm-hmm. is the scandal around Hillary Clinton's emails yeah. that should have been in her state department account that were in her personal account. Mm-hmm. In email gate, she was corresponding on her personal email with Sidney Blumenthal, mm-hmm. a foreign policy advisor about Libya. And Sidney Blumenthal said, oh, I don't think you can trust the British because they're trying to like, you know, get this oil contract and the French are trying to deal with this security firm and we've got to not share this information with them. So we know because we know Hillary's emails that she was getting advice to not share American strategy with our British and French allies Mm. in Libya. Mm. And as I lived this in real time in 2013, 14, 15, you know, then, of course, the Italians and French were on opposite sides of the Libyan civil war. This predates Trump. And mm. I want to really get this, that this oh, enduring absolutely. disorder yeah. is not a product of Trump. Oh, Trump is able to come yeah. to power because of the enduring yeah, disorder. That's right. Yeah, 100 percent. And the enduring yeah. disorder. Is that once you have a note of disorder, it leads to more disorder, just like when you and I have social distrust, then I suspect your motives and am more likely to take an aggressive position against you. So Mm, mm, mm. because Libya and Syria imploded, you had things like my friend, Ambassador Christopher Stephen, being murdered in Benghazi on September 12th, 2012. Well, what impact did that have? It had a major impact to letting Trump be elected because Mm. a mainstream Republican like Jeb Bush or Mitt Romney couldn't be running on a platform of lock her up. Exactly. Yeah. And if you listen to those Benghazi hearings, the insanity of blaming Hillary for the death of the ambassador, Mm. which she had absolutely no responsibility for. It's not the ambassador's job to say that they should have five as opposed to seven Marine security guards. Do you know what Mm. I mean? Think Mm. think about how absurd that contention Mm. is. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the radical right could take advantage of that. And then if you look at Syria, it's the implosion of the Syrian state, which allows the flow of migrants to Europe. Mm. And without those flow of migrants to Europe, you're not going to get the five-star movement in Italy 
or someone like Nigel Farage scaremongering with yeah. an ad on a bus saying, you know, Turkey is going to join the EU and you're going to have a bazillion yeah. million refugees all of a sudden living in Britain, which doesn't make sense. And the refugees were not actually from Turkey. You know what I mean? But it's just this climate of chaotic things on the borders of Europe with migrants coming in and and things that the neo-populist right can take advantage of. But then, ironically, as you alluded to, when they're in power, they don't fix. The fascinating thing about Trump and migration is he talks about the crisis we have on the southern border and all the Mexicans. Mm. But then when he's in office, he never really built the wall. Yeah. No. At the end of the four years, the wall was not built. There was not more of a wall blocking the migrants because he wants there to be a migration crisis so he can run on it in 2024. And if you if you look at Brexit, has Brexit fixed the relationships between the European Union mm. and Britain? No. Mm. Mm. It's created more red tape and more delays. And there's still the same issues with, you know, migrants and economic entanglement and Nigel Farage and other hard right people can run on very similar neo-populist issues because Brexit creates more of the chaos, which help bring them to power. They don't want to fix these issues. And Orban is like the best example of this. Here's a man who has convinced Hungarians that they are under a permanent state of siege, that their mm. country is in continual national crisis. And yet he doesn't fix any of those crises so he can run on the crisis for the new election. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I mean, it's. A, I've spoken uh, on the podcast previously about the Balkans in Bosnia, in particular, on this on on this very point. It's exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same almost recipe of how to you know ensure that you get back into power is is you know incite some fear and hatred and uh, uh, talk about threats. Uh, and we see this time and time again. I mean, never never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, you know, because that's that's what will you know ensure that you know the revolving chairs or the musical chairs of political power. Uh, you know. Uh, are retained, which um, I mean, I think it's a, it's fascinating. And again, I'm 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 even more amazed uh, that you know you you, you mentioned you made the mention that or, or you stressed that Trump is not the cause of this. I'm, I'm amazed that you have to make that statement um, because that to me is concerning that people actually think that it's Trump's fault uh, or that you know it's somehow because of Trump that we find ourselves in a situation where we are. Um, is this is this actually something that people? Uh, uh, argue with you on or, or, or make the point? Yes. Many wow. Americans suffer from what I call Trump derangement syndrome. Wow. This is the idea on the left that even many of my close friends and colleagues and family members believe in, which is that Trump is to blame for everything. Hmm. So hmm. the war in Ukraine is a, entirely a product of Trump's appeasement of Putin. And then you hmm. say, but Obama had the red line that we didn't enforce and hmm. Obama had very weak sanctions when Crimea was annexed. No, 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 no. It's that Putin, you know, yeah, convinced right. Trump at Helsinki. You're like, well, hey, I like blaming Trump for stuff, but that we're in this mess of appeasing Putin yeah. is like to a large extent an Obama plus Trump problem. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. So Trump derangement syndrome, you see the infrastructure that's not built. Like, it's shocking how bad our roads are. Non-Americans don't realize that mm -hmm. we have a third world quality of, you know, major airports and highways and stuff. Mm -hmm. And frequently I'm chatting with friends and they're like, well, this is because Trump's infrastructure plans were bogus. And you're like, but Obama had all of these infrastructure plans and the Green Deal and whatever, and I-95, which connects Manhattan and DC, you know, yeah, arguably yeah. the two most important power centers <laughs> in the Western hemisphere. It's all filled with paddles and there's always one lane closed and there's always horrible traffic. 
and some guy will say, well, this is because of Trump. And you're like, um, no, yeah. I'm from New York and I've been right. I've been taking this. You know, I, I drive back and forth once a month for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's never yeah. gotten fixed. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah people just don't uh, they're not willing to own the complexity of yeah. how we've gotten to this moment. Yeah. Which is what I was referring to before where, where, when I uh, made the point about, you know, I my doubts of people actually delving into this uh, deeply enough. Simple is uh, is effective, uh, which I think is why, you know, uh, we're seeing the growing division, uh, you know, particularly in the in, in the US, I think, uh, as a prime example, uh, but also in other parts of the developed world. What what is the role of uh, of technology and social media in this? I mean, I, I, I'm guessing I know the answer, but I, I do want to hear what you think. So it could have been a cause for good, and it still can be, but it's been a cause for ill. Chapter mm. three of my book looks yeah. at the Libyan microcosm of how unregulated cyberspace mm-hmm. leads to neopopulism. Mm. And fascinatingly, both extremely free libertarian democracies like America and post-conflict states like Libya have very similar policies towards social media. You know, anyone can say anything and there's infinite amounts of disinformation. Mm. Whereas more controlled societies, say China, but also even some European countries, they police social media mm. because they realize its disruptive effects. And as you, as you know, most people are aware, in Germany, you can't deny the Holocaust, but in America, you can, right? Mm. Mm. So we tolerate a greater degree of disinformation here. Um, and that allows things like Trump to incite the January 6th insurrection. You know, mm. he was banned from Twitter after, not during or before, mm. because we have a, a, an obsession with free speech. And in Libya, there's just no authority to regulate anything Mm. because there's no state structure at all. It's complete chaos. There's two prime ministers and, you know, there's no institutions and no one goes to work and and nothing really functions. Yeah. But both situations allow a chaotic debate, which allows extreme actors to dominate the agenda. So fascinating things, if you look at the Siraj Haftar conflict, Mm. meaning the internationally appointed GNA in Western Libya that yeah. came about as a result of the 17 December 2015 Sherat agreement. And the prime minister that they appointed Siraj, who governed for five years and who I met many times, hmm. you know, nice grandfatherly figure. You couldn't say what he stood for. He didn't have any economic programs. He didn't really reform the oil sector in any way. He barely made any new appointments. The semi-sovereign institutions were all the same heads as they had been when he took office. Hmm. He was not like beloved by the Libyan people or a great presence on social media. Then you look at Haftar, a rogue general who proclaimed a coup, you know, former Qaddafi officer, then had worked for the CIA. Then he proclaimed a coup, which no one backed. Then he proclaimed another coup and he got some backers and he killed lots of Islamists in Benghazi. And then he laid siege to Derna and killed many families there and took Russian support and Mm-hmm. He articulated a message, a message of anti-Islamism. The yeah. only good Muslim brother is a dead Muslim brother. And we're going to fight the Turks and Erdogan is Satan and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Militarized nationalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and also a certain kind of Arabism, because mm-hmm. he would say that the Misratans and others are not real Arabs. They're like mm-hmm. half Turks. Mm-hmm. 
that's a guy and a message that works on social media. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The message of this kind of neo-populist authoritarian, particularly when magnified with Russian and Saudi money, it works on social media. It ping-pongs around. People respect and respond to the memes. So, I mean, it, it shouldn't surprise you that Biden's tweets are not as red as Trump's tweets were. Mm. There's something about our era and the way these things are playing out where it's not easy to be a boring centrist or center left person and, and capture people's attention in a way that can motivate them for political action. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point, because, I mean, it, it really speaks to, again, the incentives you're talking about. The, the, the social media model is incentivized by the global disorder. I mean, it feeds on that. Uh, and there's ample of research. It's even worse. Yeah. It's because everything is clickbait. The yeah. social media promotes the disorder. We yeah. know that part of the reason that the YouTube algorithms yeah. lead right. towards more violent and, and hate speech content being generated, mm. and Facebook is even worse, mm. people click on the thing that's more extreme so that it says, Hillary runs a pedophilic, yeah. you know, sex yeah. rig in a pizza parlor. People click on that, right? Yeah, exactly. And if it yeah. says, actually, interest rates are up 0.02%, and it's very important that we have a rebalancing to have countercyclical spending, no one clicks on that link. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, because it's nuanced. So, it requires the, the context and understanding of what's actually going on. Yeah. yeah. So let me say that I see a way that technology could be part of the solution, Mass. Mm-hmm. Every new technology, particularly in the communication space, leads to new ideologies. Mm. So Protestantism was the product of the printing press. Mm-hmm. You can't have Protestantism without the printing press, because Luther says, "Read the Bible for yourself." Yeah. Come to your own conclusions. You don't need the priest to intermediate to you. You don't need to read Latin. But you can't have that message without the printing press. Hmm. Hitler and Mussolini, they came to power because of the radio. They had a more popular appeal and could reach particularly the upper working class who might not be you know, reading complex books of political philosophy, but could listen on the radio to the Nuremberg rallies or to the hmm. March on Rome hmm. and that invective. And then in the Arab world, a guy like Nasser, who really mastered radio. Trump and, to my mind, Putin are the geniuses of the way social media interacts with their particular electorates and cultures, right? Mm-hmm. They're based. Yeah. 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 Russia has a, a, a a deep attachment to its certain kind of nationalism and his Ruski Mir ideology taps into social media in this way and that way. And um, America firstism and, and everything that Trump is getting out with the left behind working class. Hmm. I think a point will come when the situation is so dire that people are going to reject it and say, you know what? I don't mind giving up a little bit of my personal freedom or I don't mind giving up a little bit of my woke ideology. Mm. We just need to have content-driven, policy-driven elites deciding things like healthcare policy Mm. or foreign policy. It may take a long slog, right? This may be in our children's generation. Things are going to have to get a lot worse. But then at that moment, technology can be a force multiplier for a global demos. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. because I think people could get to this point where right now, 
the average American and average French person says, no, 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 we're not that similar. We wouldn't vote for the same candidates or whatever. <laughs> but I think if you if you play the clock forward and you really think about the issues of someone in rural France and me in New Jersey or Manhattan or London, they're actually not that different. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. our cultural values and, and what we want from the world and what we want for our kids is actually very similar. Absolutely. We've been pushed apart and we, we you know, it's like there's been a lack of class consciousness to use a like Marxian mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. view. We've been divided from each other by this stuff. And it's going to be tough because some people who they think that their most important issue is like transgendered rights or transgendered bathrooms are mm. going to have to realize that they're going to have to not push that issue because yeah. we have bigger fish to fries, like confronting Putin and climate change. Mm. And the woke who put, you know, certain identity issues first, you know, I'm really a hyphenated Armenian, this, 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 this American. Yeah as the most important reason I'm voting this way, well, that's not going to work. But I think there's going to have to be a backlash against this. And then technology might allow this global demos who more wants to entrust experts because the problems of the world are getting more complicated, not less. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, it's, it's a wonderful way to finish up as well. I mean, I, I, I not necessarily, again, as hopeful as, as you are, because I do wholeheartedly agree uh, with how we started this conversation, and that's the, the that it's a lot to do with psychology. And you made the point that you know behavioral economics uh, has flipped the rational model on its head, um, and we're seeing uh, you know social media flip any rationality you know on its head, uh, in, in, on on every every domain of our lives, uh, from politics to to health um, to global uh, you know relations to domestic relations. Um, I, I'm and we're not seeing the business model of social media at this point in time just yet changing. Yes, there are some regulations, there are some uh, broad pushes, but structurally, uh, this to me strikes me as merely uh, just, you know, aesthetic touch-ups as opposed to the actual core of the business model is attention, attention economy. uh, And, you know, as humans, uh, we drive, we we thrive on conflict uh, and, 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 you know, are drawn to it. Um, I don't know if you have any uh, final comments. I know we've uh, tried to cover quite a lot uh, in the limited time that we have. Um, I think uh, this calls for another episode (laughs) in the future. Thank you, Mass. I'm happy to toss out a final comment. Yeah, please. If people think that making these small compromises are not important and it's best to fight for your side to win, sorry, you got to go to places like Libya. You got to live there and think about these things. Yeah, yeah. Because the Misratan guy is like, no, 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 no. We can't let the Zintanis run the interior ministry. Mm. Or they have the airport and they're making some corrupt gains. We should be entitled to those corrupt gains. Mm. Yeah. And then you realize if you fight about those things, you can ruin one of the wealthiest societies on earth, was the wealthiest country in Africa. Mm. And obviously now it isn't, right? Yeah. Because what you fundamentally, what all Libyans needed was investment into the oil sector, the ability for people to study abroad and to get you know, improvements in their healthcare and electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, but by fighting over these little things and the personality politics of the status quo players and incumbent actors, some people are always going to benefit from a conflict economy, but the majority <laughs> of people are not. Yeah. The majority of people benefit from there being peace and investment and stability. Mm-hmm. It's going to take compromises. And, you know, I have seen in my own personal development over the course of the Brexit and Trump years and, and, and my international travel that I am very willing to give up certain social and economic issues that I might disagree with and just say, great, if 
if the price of getting along with people in Kansas mm. or in Scotland is this, great, I'll do it. Because what we don't want to do is be atomized where, you know, Scotland has a referendum and separates from the UK or our partisanship is such that, you know, we can barely agree on anything from, you know, vaccine mandates to the booster shot to how to build roads and bridges and fight inflation in this country. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's optimistic or not, but I know that 95% of my interests and the interests of, you know, my community yeah. are shared by people who have the exact opposite political view. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's what we need to uh, double click and echo, because I think that's, that, that is absolutely uh, true. And, um, you know, I, I, all I can say is to our listeners is to, to explore that point, um, because we are so radicalized on issues that aren't of very great concern, really, in the in the grand scheme of things, uh, and are willing to die on our sword for it uh, when uh, we don't necessarily realise that we're part of a bigger, much, much bigger, uh, well, global enduring disorder. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's, uh, yeah, uh, and I must uh, just again say, uh, Jason, I absolutely love that book. It spoke so much to me as, as somebody who's born in the Balkans, and I'm glad you talked about Sweden. I lived in Sweden for three years, and, uh, you know, the, the the institutional trust that exists or the social capital that exists um, in that country is absolutely uh, phenomenal. I'm um, so jealous of it. And I think yeah. that it can happen in multi-ethnic places. Like I use another example of Malta, yeah. Yeah. small country. Mm-hmm. I love living in a place where there's social trust. Mm. I'm happier. I am more likely to have productive conversations with strangers. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sadly, New York is not that place and the States are less so, but yeah, it's been a, uh, a far ranging and very passionate conversation. I've been happy to speak to you and your listeners, Maz, and uh, I look forward to talking more. Wonderful. Jason, thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, Please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.